as an assistant, it's always easy to make suggestions, like what we're doing or what we're not doing. I always used to argue for like a mental day and then like a physical day where you can kind of let it go. And, and there was a coaching mentor and friend, Canadian coach named Ken Shields, who's like the godfather of coaching in Canada. He had a great line said, it's hard to teach while you're competing. It's funny because I'm reminded of that quite a bit because it, there's a lot of truth to it. But the five on five helps you teach and I think coach like role definition, which is a really, really hard thing to do. But I think it's one of the main things you do as a coach. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Utah Jazz assistant, as well as the head coach of Team USA for the 2022 America, Alex Jensen. Coach Jensen is here today to discuss using five on five to teach, compete, and establish roles and we talk the art of drop coverage and playing the famous triangle and two for Rick Majerus in the 1998 Elite Eight during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches, one of the best ways to help support what we do is by becoming a member of SG+. We now have coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries who are happy to call members, and they get access to SGTV's over 500 detailed breakdown video library by both ourselves and coaches like Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Pannone, Martin Schiller, Josh Schertz, and many more, as well as the weekly deep dive newsletter, access to a private coaching community, and much more. For more information, email us at info at slappingglass.com or visit slappingglass.com to sign up today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Alex Jensen. Coach, we want to jump right in with you with some on-the-court stuff. You just got done coaching Team USA, Maricup, heading into camp with the Utah Jazz. And some of the discussions we've been having with coaches all summer and as we get to preseason is just the ins and outs of using five-on-five in practice to teach, to build, to grow all the concepts and whatnot that you want with your team. And it sounds simple on its face, but there's so many different ways to go about it and to use it and to do it. And so just to start, we'll kind of be broad here in the beginning, but how have you viewed using five on five as either a teaching or competitive tool at your level? You know, first of all, like, you know, it's kind of a discussion I've had with fellow coaches. I don't think we do it enough. The NBA schedule is such that you're traveling or playing almost every day. So, you know, you're always hesitant, afraid of injuries and whatnot. But I think we were talking about it as a staff leading into camp, like, you know, before you get there, like, one-on-one, two-on, building up to the five-on-five. And the other thing that sticks out to me is guys, even, and I think it's kind of the plague with basketball from age 12 to the NBA is guys like they don't just play anymore. They get a workout coach, they get two or three coaches, one player, lots of cones and pads. And it's always interesting either my conversations with players I've coached is just five-on-five, like learning how to play with other guys. It's amazing how you know, just because, you know, through their workouts and stuff, they have a good mindset of what they want to do. But five on five gets you, okay, whether you're playing with, in my world, okay, Mike Conley or Donovan Mitchell or whoever it is, like how to play with those other guys. So coach, I guess just diving in on that, then both your experience with Team USA, where you're trying to formulate a team quickly and put them into concepts quickly to have them learn how to play or 
you know, come up into training camp where you have limited time to do that. How have you viewed trying to get those guys to play through five on five quickly? The America Cup was an incredibly rewarding experience. And I always say that the national team stuff is like the last pure form of basketball left. The best thing about that was coach Jim Boylan, who's coaching the other USA team for qualifying games. I had a week of practice before we went down to Brazil and then we had group play. So I had more time. Like he had less than a week, then you have two games that you need to win. And what you end up doing is you simplify quite a bit. You know, he always talked about, we joined his meetings when he's talking to his staff and the players and just the conversations. Like we got to simplify it, right? Which I think is a great way for us starting the season in the camp with the Jazz, just simplify it. Have your handful of things, your non-negotiables, your absolutes that you just pound home. So then you have a strong base and then you can, you know, as time goes on, you can, you know, expand what you're trying to teach, but whatever value you want. And I remember Coach Boylan talked about, you know, in FIBA, it's their game. It's not our game. It's their game. And I remember telling our guys that, you know, listen, we go down there, everybody wants us to lose. FIBA wants us to lose. The refs want us to lose. Not saying they're going to cheat, but like we have to even more so buy into all this. But I think whatever it is, defense is the big thing. You got to have your absolutes, like the things that you coach every day, a base to start from. Coach, what were offensively and defensively the things that were your non negotiables or your strong base that, you know, we're going to put this in and we'll start to build off of that? There's not a lot of time to scheme, but I remember, you know, Coach Boylan, you know, his absolutes, his three keys, I guess, we kind of took those from him because he had obviously had the experience of coaching it, but it was one-on-one defense, closeouts, and rebounding. And if you watch the final in that game against Argentina and Brazil, like the last five minutes, every shot that went up, it was like a war and a foul that wasn't called. It was great to watch, but just challenging your guys to guard one-on-one defense and fouls were huge. And, you know, Sean Ford, who's one of the guys does a great job, runs it. He has like a lot of stories from past coaches, but you know, he used to say coach K's big thing was the fouls because five fouls, you got to win the foul battle, but you're in the penalty each quarter on your fifth foul. That was the challenge. Guard your guy one-on-one. Don't foul, show your hands. And it's different because you're allowed a lot more contact if you show your hands, but then the closeouts, which is kind of ties into the one-on-one defense and then just rebound. Like I can remember my second year, I was coaching Rudy Gobert and I was trying to tell him to block out, but in the NBA. He blocks out, he misses out on a lot of rebounds because it's above the rim. Remember it dawned on me, we were watching clips before a game and he's like, yeah, but if I block out, I don't get it. And it's like, and he had said it before. I was like, well, you know, you're right. So I kind of said, well, take a step towards him and then go get it. And you increase your rebounding area. In this instance in America, you've got to, it's not as quick of a game, but you've got to block out. You got to rebound. It's physical. They don't call it. And that was just a different thing for me and for our players. But those are the three things that we try to hit on every day. And it was funny because like when we lost to Mexico in the first game, just like in an NBA season or any other place I coached, like after a loss, you tend to get back to the basics, right? So like after we lost that, like film was, okay, one-on-one defense, closing out with a high hand, no threes, and then blocking out. Hitting on those three things. And when you then go to the practice are you going to do one-on-one, two-on-twos? Or is it like, we'll just get to the five-on-five, five, keep it simple, we'll let them play. But like, these are the things we're going to harp on throughout that five-on-five. Five. You know, with my assistants, I kind of gave each of my assistants like one of those things, you know, that was theirs. Like you can coach everybody on the team, nobody step on anybody's toes, but that's your thing. So they could have their point of emphasis on that. But I remember we were fortunate enough, like I said, to watch a couple of the other Team USA, Coach Boylan's practices, and they just drilled it and pounded it home. And so we did some of the same drills 
think that's a good way to put emphasis on it. So then when you play five on five, we played a couple scrimmage games before. And then when we watched film, that's what we talked about because it's so different and guys hear it. I think when you first hear it, like even when I was told, like, this is how the game's different, you hear it, but you think, okay, yeah, I got it. I got it. But that you don't. It's some of those things you have to go through to totally, in, I guess, but yeah, we just pounded it at home. And that was my mistake too, because you kind of got away from those and try to do too much. As an assistant, it's always easy to point out, you know, keep it simple, not do a lot of things, right? That when you're in charge, you tend to veer away. It's kind of a joke I have with a couple of my coworkers, like plays, right? That's like the fun part, getting to the, all the, the trickery, but it all boils down to those basics, whether it's the America Cup or an NBA season. Keeping it simple. And then you mentioned Europe and the trickery, but you know, a lot of the false motion and there are false actions that you see before, like the primary actions. Now with that kind of keep it simple mindset, what are you talking with your guys or how are you navigating kind of all this false motion and switching, not switching or what's real, what's not? That was another thing Boylan hit on. And again, like, it's great to learn from their experience, but like we're not switching off the ball because a lot of these teams like Mexico, like their core group have been together for 10 years. Argentina, who's a really good team, same thing, right? They play together for 10 years and they know how to counter all that stuff. And you have a guys that you practice together for a week, but just like you're chasing your guy. You're not like, that was the one thing on those off ball, like the actions you're chasing your guy, you're getting locked, you're chasing. And, and then which kind of helped because you weren't helping so much because the one-on-one defense was such a big part of it. Like you have your guy. So you don't have time to scheme like, okay, we're going to switch this, switch the curl, go under. Actually, it was a great learning experience for me because, you know, in our meetings leading up to camp, we're talking about what we're going to switch and not and what we're not going to switch. You know, it's funny, even the last game we played, guys are switching things that you kind of told them not to, but you got to <laughs> pick and choose what you spend your time on, right? Like correcting. And they're really good at it. Right. In the NBA, there's not a lot of, especially when you get deep in the playoffs, it's just matchups, one on one spacing. That's the beauty of the FIBA game. Like you have guys that know how to come off screens. The screen setting there is great because you don't get those little, you can use your hips and your butt and they don't call it, which is kind of nice in a way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Coach, circling back to five on five within all of this conversation, one of the conversations Pat and I were having recently is just the, this kind of subtle differences of using five on five to teach versus compete, you know, where you're just going to let them play and compete and have a really competitive five on five segment. Maybe you keep score or whatever it is versus, Hey, we're going to stop. We're going to teach. We're going to correct. We're going to dive back in. How do you view, I guess, the differences of when you're going to go five on five, when you may or may not do those different types of things? It's a good question. I used to always, again, as an assistant, it's always easy to make suggestions like what we're doing or what we're not doing. I always used to argue for like a mental day and then like a physical day where you can kind of let it go. And, and there was a coaching mentor and friend, Canadian coach named Ken Shields, who's like the godfather of coaching in Canada. He had a great line said, it's hard to teach while you're competing. It's funny because I'm reminded of that quite a bit because there's a lot of truth to it. You know, in the five on five, I think on every level, because most of the guys in the America, they kind of didn't have jobs necessarily. That's why they were available and playing in it. And, you know, they're agents and they think that, you know, if I score, it can help me maybe get a job. But the five on five helps you teach and I think coach like role definition, which is a really, really hard thing to do. But I think it's one of the main things you do as a coach, like how you fit into the team, what your role is. You know, you hit the lines of, you know, star in your role and it's a hard thing at any level. Coach, when you decide to stop or interject in a five on five situation, either to teach or correct whatever it is, how you and the staff thought about 
restarting the five on five so that they understood the point? Did you like replay from that action that there was a mistake or did you just start the whole drill over or did you not stop it and prefer to teach, say, after the up and back or whatever happened? I mean, I guess, how would you try to teach through it? When I was a D-League coach in Canton and went to the Cavaliers practice, they did a thing where they go five on five and they would start it with 20 minutes on the clock and it'd be a running clock. And the winners were whoever were up at the end of the 20 minutes or whoever got to 20 points first. Say one team would start with a free throw and you'd go one, two, three trips and the other team would start with a free throw. And you could start, it's a great because then you could start with a side out of bounds. And in FIBA, there's a lot of under out of bounds, like college. In the NBA, there's not a lot of them. But then you like there's kind of a natural stop where you and the assistants could make a point. I found that to be really good. And other than that, the lesson I learned is like you didn't want to stop it unless it was, and you, you weren't calling a guy out, but unless it was one of those absolutes that you had. Sure. And I remember at a practice, Coach Boylan stopped. And it was great because Stockton had shot an early three and he handled it perfectly. He stopped it. And he talked about how, you know, stock, stock, as we call them, how integral he'd been on Team USA in those qualifying games for the last few years. But we can't take that shot. It was great. It was short. It was sweet. You weren't calling anybody out. It was great to watch. Absolutely. And Coach, just you mentioned a couple of times, though, being a good assistant and you were just a head coach over the summer and, and doing all this and everything rests on your shoulders. Now, going back to your role as an assistant, is there anything that you're taking back with you as a head coach now to try to become a better assistant in, in that fashion of when to interject, what to give your head coach, what to prioritize with all this stuff? Oh, for sure. You know, I remember the D-League's the greatest I still call it the D-League because it's the D-League for me. I'm not saying that by mistake instead of the G-League. <laughs> but it's the greatest first head coaching gig. And the reason is, is when I did it, the obscurity of it, right? I mean, I came straight from college and you know, it took me probably two or three months to find myself. The best advice I, I got was do what you know. An old college assistant coach told me that before I took the job. And I said, you're, you're right, you're right. But no matter who it is, I think first time you're a head coach, you try to be what you've seen and heard and been around, right? So I think I was probably trying to be a little too majerous, but it took me two or three months to find my groove and be comfortable and to do what I know and what I believed in. And you know, doing the AmeriCup thing, I think it took me probably a week or so to get back into that groove. Like I said before, it was always funny because in his assistant, it's always easy to point out what's wrong or what you should do or make suggestions. Being a head coach and going to an assistant, the best thing it's given to me, it's not just to point out the problems, but offer a solution. There's a lot of you know funny instances over my career where you could say like, you know, you say something and it's like, well, yeah, no kidding. We all see that. Now what should we do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you guys have been a part of it. Too. <laughs> like that was the lucky thing I had is like every assistant I had had been a head coach for a lot of games, which... The experiences, see both sides of it really, it's invaluable. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high powered, affordable, and easy to use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com glass. 
That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Coach, great stuff. Really well said there. We want to transition now into a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. What we'll do is we'll give you three different topics, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we'll discuss from there and see what your answers are. So if you're ready, coach, we'll dive into this. Okay. This first theme of this first start, sub, sit question is tough to teach. I'm going to give you three different options of what's the toughest to teach when it comes to teaching or playing in a triangle in two. And we're going to go back. We were looking back, obviously, through your career. You guys famously went to the triangle in two in the Elite Eight against Arizona on your way to the Final Four in that game. I know you were a large part in that game. So I'd like to ask you three different pieces of the triangle in two to teach and what's the toughest one from your point of view. All right. So start, sub, or sit. The two guys that are in man-to-man, the two guys that are tasked with guarding two best players. Second option, the top of the triangle. So in that case, it would have been Andre Miller back in the day for you guys. Uh Or the bottom two in the triangle. The toughest to teach would be the top. The two guys in man-to-man, I would sub. And then the sit would be the bottom two guys. So why is that top of the triangle? Why is that so difficult to teach? You know, it's funny because, you know, Jason Terry just joined our staff and he was on that team. It was before I went to Brazil, we were talking about it. And I was one of the chasers and Michael Dickerson, the triangle two, you're kind of gambling on somebody to make or miss shots. Michael and I, we were joking that, you know, Michael Dickerson missed shots that day. So that's why it worked. And we were genius. (laughs) You know, Andre Miller played the top and he had a triple double that game. Well, first we were lucky that Dickerson missed the shots, but there's a larger area to cover. You've got to, you know, most of the time do two things at one time. You got to be smart and Andre did a good job and you're kind of around the ball and you, know, you want to make him hesitate. But that's a hard one to teach because there's no exact rules or science to it. You got to have feel. And fortunately, Andre had a lot of feel. And coach, with that top guy, it's a gamble. So how much of ball pressure do you want or closeouts do you want from that top guy when he's kind of moving around, you know, when that's not the two chaser guys with the ball? You want to keep everything in front of you play passing lanes, and then you have a big rebounding area. I mean, that's, I think, part of the reason he got the triple-double because he had the big rebounding area you could run in from. But as they swing the ball, like you've got a large area. You basically got the half moon and stay between the ball and the basket, but also you have to be a step ahead. Or, you know, Majerus had a great line that I still use today. It's like body here, mind there. It's like your body would be like at the nail, but your mind would be at the next pass. And hopefully you anticipated that well. But it's just a really hard one because there's no right or wrong reason. You can debate it forever. Stay between the ball and the basket. Got to play with your hands. You know, Andrea, like I said, good feel and long arms and and you just take up space and it's kind of like you're just kind of bluffing, right? Like you're showing this, but not, but your mind's somewhere else. That makes sense. To me, that was a great line that I still use that made sense to me as a player. Zooming out on the technical aspect of the triangle in two for a second, but Going back to that game, Miles Simon, Mike Bibby, you guys held them to 13 points combined. One of nine for Simon, three of 15 for Bibby, obviously as the chasers. But I wonder about in the locker room, in practice, before you're going into a lead eight game and Majerus is telling you guys, hey, we're going to do this. If you could remember back, I mean, I know so much like the belief of it can work. What was the selling point? Did you guys believe it could work or it just worked out because like you said, Dickerson was missing? I mean, do you remember back on the belief of the whole thing? Yeah, I think Coach Majerus or my teammate Drew Hansen in his book, Drew Hansen had a comment about it and it was true because we walked through it and then the day of the game before the meeting, I leaned over to him and I said, I hope he 
Because I was, we were going to send three back too to stop the transition. I was the small forward, so I wasn't going to rebound offense. I was going to run back. So I remember before that, the meeting, the day of the game, I said, I hope he comes in and calls it off and sends me to the boards. <laughs> but, you know, fortunately we were young and we just did what we were told as hard as we could. Sure. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> you did end up with a double-double yourself that day. So you did oh, get your rebound yeah. on the defensive end. That's good. <laughs> yeah. No, but that was, I remember thinking that he'd call it off. <laughs> yeah. I think Majerus did have another good line. I was telling Pat before about like one of the most important things about a triangle and two. It's like when to go to it, but more importantly, when to get out of it, when to go away from it. Yeah. You know, it was funny because I think the next year we went to it against Miami of Ohio with Wally Zerbia and we lost. And I can't remember the kid's name as a lefty. He was three for five from three. And he was, you know, he made shots like it's the gamble. That's the hard thing about it, right? If it works and Dickerson misses his shots, you're a genius. And if it doesn't, then, you know, going back to the point how it's easy as an assistant or player to make suggestions. But when you're the guy making the decisions, you got to live with them, right? Live or die by them. That was the beauty of going back to my first head coaching gig in Canton. Like there was numerous things that I screwed up, but nobody knew. And I didn't get criticized unless you read the Canton repository, local paper. <laughs> right. So like you, you were able to learn and grow. And, you know, you see that a lot of time with first time head coaches in the NBA. Like if you're not given that luxury with all the commentators and social media. It's no secret our affinity for Spanish basketball. With their international prowess, as well as having one of the best domestic leagues in the world, their sustained success lies in their ability to develop quality coaches with a deep understanding of the game. Now you can gain access into their coaching methods and philosophy with the International Basketball and Mentoring course from Sport Coach, a six-month course dedicated to teaching Spanish tactics, player development, scouting, methodology, plus a monthly webinar hosted by us at Slapping Glass, all for under $100 a month. Moreover, upgrade your experience with small group mentoring from professional coaches with over 10 plus years in the ACB and European leagues. Act now as time is limited. The course begins December 5th. So visit sportcoach.es slash en or sign up for our weekly newsletter at slappingglass.com for more information and to sign up today. All right, coach, our next one, this is called overlooked big man skills and the drop coverage. So as the big's dropping, the stabs or the swipes, his hand activity, uh-huh. the angle of his drop and containing the ball and covering the roller, and then the rim contest. What is a shot he should be contesting at the rim versus what is one we'll live with that, like that's in our favor and don't give up the offensive rebounding position. Okay. I will start with the stabs and swipes, sub the angle and sit on the rim because like Rudy Gobert is a lead at it, but. That's because of who he is, not because we got him. <laughs> <laughs> with your start, what were you teaching with the hand activity or what were you emphasizing with your big as the ball handlers coming downhill? It was interesting. After the first day, the Mary Cup team, we were gonna, either going to switch it. We had Steven Zimmerman, who was great in a drop. And I think if he wouldn't have gotten foul trouble against Argentina, like it would have helped us. And then we had Zyvan Cheatham, who was switching. So, But with the drop... After the first day, we got Al Horford clips and showed him because he's very good. Like we'll have a term that we use a lot is up to touch. So you're up far enough where you're, it was a battle with Rudy a lot. Like, you know, he knew he was good, but like just to be up to touch because you're still good enough where you could be there and still stay below the roller and not give up the rim. And plus it might 
buy the guard a second or put some hesitation into the ball handler's mind. But Al Horford's really good. He gets up there and he gets low and he has that stab, which buys time. And, you know, like I always said that the best way to attack the drop is just go right at him. But very few people do. Like with Rudy, the best thing to do is just go right at him and go right at the rim. And if you get it up on the rim, you might not score, but nobody's going to be blocking out your big rolling. Nate Peavy, one of my assistants who was a big guy, and he took all of our bigs for about 15 minutes and showed him Al Horford drop coverage. Like, you know, I always find that's easier to, to teach guys when they see somebody like as good as Horford do it. You know, and the funny thing is, is you could argue that his foot angles weren't the best, but like he gets up and low and like has his hand out and he stabs and he puts doubt and he just slows down the whole play and buys everybody time. And he's really good at it. Do you find maybe working with the bigs, is it a matter of just them being on balance when they're up there so they can kind of stab without conceding position? Or is it just more like a mindset? They're just not thinking about doing it. I think it's a combo. The important thing is, is like, I used to always tell the bigs I've coached, the guys coming off, you don't want to be going up into it, right? Like you can be there early. It makes it so much easier. So if you're there, so when he comes off the pick and roll, like you're retreating with the stab. That makes sense. Instead of as he's coming off, your momentum's going forward, which you know seems simple, but it's hard, especially if somebody's you know sprinting to the screen. But one thing I learned a lot that I have I've done a bad job at I think teaching the last few years is Butch Boylan and other people call it steering. You know, because the game's so physical and FIBA, like you want to impede the guy going to screen, which buys you time. Like you steer him and you can change the angle, slow him up. And that's a hard thing, but it's a one thing that Al Horford in Boston did a great job of last year whether it was the big or any, any pick and roll. Coach, I'd love to just ask about the sub and the drop angle. And I know that's another difficult thing for a big to learn is the angle of the drop, maybe splitting two, or is it a personnel basis decision of like who's coming at you versus who's rolling? I guess maybe some of the teaching points with that angle. It kind of depends like on the coverage you're in. If you're like a no middle team and you push everything down, push, blue, whatever you term. But I remember... When I was in Canton, I was around Mike Brown for about a month when he got the Cleveland job the second time. And it was great. In that month, I learned a ton. Like, you always remember like his foot angles, say the pick and rolls in the middle, your foot angles, you wanted to, one of the assistants had said, there's kind of like that driving line to the baseline. He's like, no to the sideline. So your foot, if that makes sense. So your foot angles kind of bearing, not straight to the sideline, but more to the corner, but the sideline. So that prevents, if you're up to touch, that prevents the split. It was interesting because Al Horford would always get his outside hand and foot up, which is it's hard to stab or use your inside hand, right? So his, his outside foot was up and that was, and if you were up the, on the pick and roll early enough, you could do that. But like when Rudy, I don't know if you've seen, like there've been a handful of times over the years, but when Rudy Gobert would be up with his outside hand, then he would do a 360 and then make a play at the rim. <laughs> As he was stabbing, the guy would attack that outside hand and then he would literally do a 360, go to the rim and block it or affect it so they'd miss. So like that goes back to the importance of being up. I think more importantly in the foot angle is just being up there early so you're not coming at the guy as he's coming off the pick and roll. And then just a real specific secondary action that's, I mean, sometimes you see in the NBA or internationally is when a big is in drop and the guard say like starts to snake it and then there's that you know Gortot screen on the big that's dropped in how do you plan or prepare for teams that are maybe trying to do that as that big is dropping <laughs> hopefully your <laughs> players are better than the other players 
to be honest, right? Majer, <laughs> Coach Majerus so had a lot of lines, but one of them that I always remember is he always used to say players win games. And it's really hard when they do it randomly. If it's in a particular play they have when they try to do it, you know, maybe you can sniff it out and see that it's coming, but it's really hard to guard against, especially if you're in the drop. And, you know, that was the thing in FIBA. I'm surprised they don't do it more in FIBA because they allow more contact if you're going to do that, like Gortat screen. But the snake is, you know, that's when we had Craig Sward, who was a really good defender on the snake. And you hopefully they can get over there. Like Drew Holiday is probably the best in the world, right? Because he has the size and just keep coming. And eventually you might have to switch it. But, you know, it's funny because it's a hard thing to teach and a hard thing to guard against. You know, Quinn Snyder, he had a great line that I always remember is like, as you do things, whether it's five on five or whatnot, like players will teach you. We've fallen into actions that players have just, you know, I remember Joe Ingles and Gordon Hayward used to have this backdoor law play. It was the one actually where he hurt his ankle in Boston. They ran it a little bit different, but they just came to that in them by themselves. And we'd get it once every two or three games. Gordon would get it done. It wasn't, yeah, we can't take credit for that, but they just kind of fell into it by themselves. Coach, you see it more in Europe, but teams that do drop, especially let's say someone like a big imposing, such as Rudy Gobert, they'll do like the Spanish pick and roll and try to just set that back screen also on the big. How do you try to then navigate that when you're going to be in drop and your big man also has to then try to fight over a back screen? We had a staff meeting a few days ago talking about that exact thing because Phoenix is really good at it. And you have Chris Paul who's really smart and he can tell their guys what to do and you have Booker or somebody else setting that back screen. And in the America Cup, the way to handle is you just switch it. It's funny because you go back to the absolutes, how you don't want to switch a lot, but that's the best way to guard it. Because if you just switch everything, then it kind of takes them out of it. We were really good at that a couple of years ago, this Spain ball screen. And it all goes back to sniffing it out one, but like talking. The, the guy guarding the guard who's setting the back screen or popping out for the three, he's got to scream his head off. You know, because usually we initially, we guard it where You'd call it out, you'd say Spain, and then the big would drop below the screen, and the guards would switch. Like the guy setting the back pick would guard the back pick would take the ball and the guy in the ball would peel off to the guy popping. But Phoenix is so good at it that you'd be late to the pop. There's a lot of debate, but I think, you know, hopefully you're good enough where you can switch it. And that's one thing we said is, you know, we've gone back and forth. And it also depends on your personnel. If you had Rudy at the rim then, you know, no rim, no threes, then it was fine if you gave up that pull-up. But then, you know, depending on your personnel and your team, like you rather have that mismatch with your five on the point guard than getting all screwed up and giving up a layup or a wide open three, right, with a miscommunication. I remember the Clippers, they had Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and Chris Paul used to run that, they call, I think it was 45. They'd run that tight. They'd run up high up the court and then set that tight. I don't think you're allowed to hook arms. And it was funny because we played them in the playoffs and we watched like 30 clips. I remember watching the Spurs, right? Force Chris Paul left because he's, you know, he's better going right, but he would just snake back and get to his right anyway. Or he forced left, he'd switch with the four and the five. I remember we watched the Spurs like guarded every which way, but eventually they just switched it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you know, like, like yeah. I remember, I vividly remember that. I remember it was my scout for the playoffs and I was trying to take Quinn through it. You know, and that's one of those things where there's a lot of good ideas and you talk about it, but that was the point I was trying to make. I said, but at the end of the day, the Spurs and you just switch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's in the NBA. That's the thing. Like, it's funny when teams talk about like Golden State going smaller, even Boston playing small, like it's six, nine, six, eight, six, eight, six, seven, six, three. And there's six, three guys, Marcus Smart that plays like he's six, nine. Right. So like, yeah, yeah. you know, so it's got to, 
fit your personnel. But if you had an average of six, seven across your five guys in the core, it's a lot easier to do that. Absolutely. Coach, you're off the start, supper, sit, hot seat. Thanks for playing that game with us. That was a lot of fun. No problem. Thank you. It was fun. Coach, we got one more closing question for you before we get you out of here. Thank you very much before we do for your time today. This was really fun to talk to you. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's awesome. Got my mind thinking, making notes to remind myself I'd forgotten <laughs> a lot when I became a head coach again. Our last question for you that we ask all the guests is what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? The best investment I made was when I was playing in Europe when a coach Majerus took the St. Louis job. And I, I, <laughs> I was starting to work on my Turkish passport. So, you know, I would have got huh. paid three times the amount of money and played half the minutes. And, <laughs> but, and I really didn't want to start coaching. But I think it was, I remember thinking that, you know, if I was to ever coach, this would probably be the best situation to start. Because, you know, one thing, a lot of front office guys I know is that when they think about coaching, they talk about pedigree, like where you learn the game. And I was fortunate enough to play for a great teacher of the game. And then coaching with him was like a totally different, but you also learn the game. And then the best line I, people had asked me about him is like, you know what the thing Coach Majerus did is he ruined the game of basketball for me because I can't watch a game and enjoy it. I just watch a game and pick it apart. I can hear his lines coming to my mind, but that was the making that decision. And, uh, you know, my first year I was a graduate student manager. And, and I think, especially in the NBA, a lot of guys skip those steps where you have to go learn. And, you know, and I had great assistants, like Porter Mosier was an assistant, Paul Biancardi, and you just somewhere where you can just go and absorb, watch and absorb. And, but that was the best investment I made, even though I didn't want to do it. I think I was still afraid to say no to the guy. That's why I decided to do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.